Ready to go. Good morning, everybody. It's interactive. Come on, go for it. Morning, Ted. Thank you. So who's here? Roll call. Neil. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. Welcome to the second panel of the morning. I'd like to thank Ty Roberts for opening for us. We're here to talk about we're here Herein to talk about problem, where we by the way. Pardon? Herein lies the problem, by the this way. This is the problem. Oh, this is gonna be a good here we go. Basically, the, the last few years have been kind of interesting ever since Brian started this. I would say four or five years ago, there was a lot more chair throwing and a lot more fuck yous drop dead. The, the bad thing about the maturing of a business is it becomes a lot more civil. So what we want to do is bring back some of the incivility this morning. So if you have thoughts about what we're talking about, we're not going to wait till the end for questions. Jump up, ask a question, tell uh, John Boyle he's full of it, whatever you want to do. I want to take a moment, start on the far end, have everybody introduce themselves, and then we're going to get into where we've been over the last 18 months and where everybody thinks we're going in at least maybe the next 12 months. Take it away, Daryl. All right. I'm Daryl Ballantyne. I'm uh, the founder and CEO of Lyric Find. We basically do everything relating to the use of song lyrics online. So we're a B2B provider that aggregates all the licensing and content and sublicenses it out, out to anybody who wants to use lyrics. So we're we're powering people like Pandora, Metro Lyrics, uh, Shazam, Soundhound, Lyrics.com, Nokia, everyone, basically. My name is Haney Nada. I am a venture capitalist, part-time drummer, part-time video gamer, part-time dad, uh, part-time lots of different things. But uh, I've been pretty interested in the music business for a while now. We've invested in Pandora, Soundhound, Bandpage, and there's a couple other companies in China that we've invested in. The most recent one you guys may have heard of is a company called YY. We're about a $1.6 billion fund, family of funds, and looking to invest in billion dollar ideas. My name is John Boyle. I'm the CFO and Chief Growth Officer of Insomniac. Insomniac is the largest event producer, promoter of electronic dance music events in the world. We did 800,000 tickets in 2012. We'll do probably about 1.2 million in 2013. Our flagship event, people know this brand more than they know Insomniac. It's called Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas. In 2012, we did uh, 115,000 people a night, three nights in a row. And uh, I'm happy to be here. My name is Emily White. I run a management firm called Whitesmith Entertainment. We're based in New York and Los Angeles, and we manage musicians, comedians, and took on our first athlete last year. I also started a label and publishing company called Ready Made Records with one of my management clients, Brendan Benson, last year. Hi, I'm Larry Goldberg. I'm the uh, CEO of TuneWiki. I'm also in the lyrics business. I don't license my lyrics from Daryl. But we, we have... could do that. Well, we'll, we'll see. Um, we have our own database of Lyric and our own uh, direct publisher deals. We're much more of a B2C company. We have a music player where people listen to their scrolling lyrics, and then they take their lyrics, add them to photos, post comments, and share them out to all their social networks and create lyric art and, and use that as the basis of a social music conversation. I'm Ted Cohen. I'm managing partner at Tag Strategic. We primarily work with uh, disruptive entertainment startups that kind of scare various industries. Celebrating my 30th year working in digital and music and uh, have been on all sides of the desk, henceforth moderating this panel today. Emily, what's your Twitter handle for people? At mwizzle, personal, and at whitesmithent for our company. And John? 
At JB Extreme. And I'm Spinal Tap. And Larry, we got you up there. And we got Daryl up there, so everybody's good. So let's just jump, jump right into it. I want to get Emily's impressions first. We're wondering, is the chaos over? Is the chaos just beginning? Or are we still in the middle of the chaos in terms of the transition of the business from what it was and what a lot of people reminisce over and what the business can be? From my perspective right now in the big picture, the chaos, I don't think it's over, but the bulk of it has passed. Obviously, new technologies, new mediums are going to continue to evolve forever, which is what I love about the modern music industry. But what I'm seeing is major labels, big companies, big brands latching on to a lot of the techniques that we've been talking about at this conference over the past five years. So a lot of DIY tactics, a lot of social networking is now becoming very mainstream. So to me, that means you know, the chaos has settled a little bit, but obviously there's going to be new revenue streams and, and new technologies constantly popping up, so people will continue to freak out. And so what are the new revenue streams that you look at or that you're, you're coveting right now? For us, it, it's oftentimes more the evolution of revenue streams from the past moving more into the artist's hands. So even if it is releasing our own music directly, that's a huge revenue stream for us. Setting up house concerts and, and private events, our artists do very well there. Doing our own ticketing. So doing a lot of things that the traditional music industry used to handle, but now the artists can own the rights, have a lot more creative control, and, and keep much more of the revenue. Okay. John, you've, you've watched this over the last 10 years. Are we making, are we making serious progress? Is, is it... Is it getting into business as usual, or are we still in a very disruptive phase? Um, I think it's starting to settle down. I, I agree with Emily's perspective, and, and I, think, I think her point about, you know, you're seeing the big companies really embrace these tools and, and, and these technologies, and, and as a result, I actually think we're going to kind of see a bit of a comeback of, of the label system, and, you know, certainly if you look at where, where Live Nation is investing, you know, I, I think... By embracing these technologies, big isn't necessarily bad anymore moving forward. In fact, I think big can maybe help you cut through the clutter. I've said for years, Ted, you've known this, that I think we're going to be in a situation where we're going to have a lot more artists making a living, a lot less artists getting really rich. I think that will still be the case. But I do, I, I do see stabilization among, some stabilization coming among the labels and the, uh, the big companies out there. Do you mean the major labels? Are gonna have a comeback, or just labels in general? I think I think we're gonna see majors stabilize. I think he's trying to say that people are wisening up a bit. Well, I mean, look, there's gonna be further consolidation. I think there'll be further consolidation, but but with that, I mean, look, they're gonna be able to work more volume. Is it gonna be easier to work with the big one? <laughs> no, not at all. I know I'm contrarian in this opinion, but hey, that's what this panel is for. Isn't everything for sale at the right price? And Ted was saying there was chair throwing and fighting, you know, when this conference started. And the point is, like, labels used to be very upset about these things, and now they're embracing these tactics. That's all we're saying. Dragon I mean, I'll tell you, there, there, there are old-school-style deals the... going on right mm -hmm. now. I mean, the Civil Wars deal that's out there right now, I mean, this is a massive, massive bidding war. That's, I mean, it's kind of stupid, because I doubt they'll get an ROI on it, but, I mean... You know, the Civil Wars, who are arguably the indie darling mm -hmm. of the year, is going to go do a big deal. And what do they get out of that big deal? 
think they get the engine to further cut through the clutter. That's the trick, because right now, you used to be fighting for distribution. Now you're fighting for attention. Correct. And if a big machine can give you that attention, it's a win. I mean, Emily, how do you feel about that? Absolutely, yeah. But the machine could also be, you know, I met with Converse last week, and they were telling me they're the second biggest brand on Facebook, and that really surprised me. You know, so that's a big machine that we want to be friends with and we want to be in bed with. So it doesn't always have to be the traditional partners. Right. But our brand's the salvation because, I mean, I, last year, last September, I, I came here and I went to the Outside Lands uh, concert, which was amazing. But there was a point where I looked around the field and I went, is this Outside Lands or Outside Brands? Right. Because it was the Samsung Pavilion, the Budweiser Pavilion. I mean, is that the salvation of all this? Yeah, but, but do you want to pay for it or do you want the brands to pay for it? I mean, this is, this is the trade-off. I mean, people have been used to this in television for a very long time. But is it just a deal with a different devil? Uh, I think it's evolving beyond that. Obviously, that's working for Superfly. That's working for concert promoters. But for individual artists, you know, a, a branding relationship is, is a piece of the pie. It's, it's not the answer by any means. But brands are also completely, you know, wising up as well. I, I was just... <laughs> talking to a kale chip company that's based around here and they wanted to do a flavor that's our athlete's flavor and they thought of that and I was I mean obviously Ben and Jerry's has been doing that but that's great you know anytime a brand is thinking about something that I'm not as the artist representative I think they are getting much more creative we should talk to Cliff about a red hot chili pepper chip is, is brand sponsorship really scalable though for the mass number of artists that are out there Look, there's only so many brands that are gonna pay to do you know this person's chip or things like that. Like it seems that everybody has this great hope of, well, we're gonna get a brand sponsorship and they're gonna pay us lots of money and that's gonna be our income stream. But you can't all be in a Ford commercial. Yeah, that's why it's a piece of the pie and not a means to the end by any means. So let me ask this. If I can interrupt, it, it feels like you guys are all fighting on like, about mice nuts. You know, you, right now you have a business or an industry that's $70 billion in size, and you're all trying to figure out where that $70 billion is going to go. Which pocket is it going to go? My pocket, the label's pocket, the business manager's pocket, the artist's pocket? I think it's all bullshit, primarily because the industry itself is under-monetized. If you think about it, compared to any other industry that has the kind of engagement numbers that we have as an industry, it's staggering. How much money we get from every fan that we get is, um, is mice nuts. And instead of fighting about you know, record labels, licensing deals, copyright deals, you should be trying to figure out how to take an industry that's $70 billion and turning it to $200 billion. Now, bands and musicians are not business people, so they will need some sort of either label, middleman, whatever you want to call it, business manager, to get there. You guys are not, bands and musicians are not business people. But you're starting to see early anecdotal evidence of things, do, bands thing, doing things differently. Emily in the, in the green room talked about all these different ways of generating cash flow from, from the industry. That's fantastic. The reason why you're attracting venture capitals for the very first time is that the industry feels like it's a $70 billion industry to going to $200 billion industry. You're not going to do that by doing the same thing over and over or going to brands or going to direct the fans. I think there's a multitude of ways to do that. And I think you have to get creative in terms of how you monetize your industry. And now, the big other thing is that we've been monetizing products, the music product, for a long time. I think the product as a loss leader should be given away for free. And I think what we should be trying to do is monetize the actual fan. Right? If you can monetize the fan and segment the fans, you will be a much bigger business than you are today. And you won't be fighting for 
pennies. That's true. That's true, with the exception of the the creative. So you have a songwriter who basically, you know, contributes to that creative process. They're not in that monetization chain of the experience. They're sitting at home wondering why they're not getting any mechanicals, why they're not getting any performance. So you can't throw the product out the window completely. You can't throw the music out the window and just use it as a lost leader to sell t-shirts because it doesn't compensate everyone in the value chain. Selling t-shirts is still a product. I mean, I'm not, going to say, I'm not saying a t-shirt is the product. Merch is not the answer, right? It's the whole food chain that needs to figure out how do I turn my product back to an experience right. and monetize the king for that experience. Right. Agreed, but I'm saying, I'm just saying, where does the song, Emily, where does the song well, fit in this? You know, with what he's talking about, it, it depends on what you're selling. You're right, the songwriter is going to have to be compensated, you know, assuming they're not the artist, which, which happens all the time. But what I love about what you're saying, and, and I hope everybody can really take away from this conference, is not just battling over streaming royalties, which is what this panel is about in theory, and, you know, talking about monetizing the traditional music industry into the new music industry. It's coming up with new revenue streams, thinking about things completely different. Even it's, um, you know, RDO's artist program, and I know Rhapsody has one too, where, you know, fans that sign up because, because they've clicked on Brennan Benson's account, um, or I'm sorry, artists get paid $10 from RDO and, and $25 from Rhapsody. Those are new revenue streams, and that's what we need to think about instead of just fighting over pennies, which has been going on for years. I love streaming services. It's, it's great for our artists. It's great for fans, um, but I'm also not going to... Are you concerned about your revenue from Spotify or RDO or Rhapsody? Not at all, because also we're competing with free. So the fact that Spotify and all these great streaming services have gone out and made this content legal, both for fans and in a way to compensate rights holders, is something that actually should be applauded. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it needs to, to be tweaked. But you know, when, when you read the headline of an article that says an artist isn't being paid, they need to talk to their rights holder. And not that they had a choice you know, pre-early 2000s, but that's where that money is going. Spotify paid a ton of money to be able to launch as a legal service. It only took the music industry 15 years since Napster to get it together. So I'm not going to fight against something that makes total sense mm -hmm. for the fans. OK. What were the Spotify numbers, like 500 million a year in royalties? That they, yeah, so I, mean, I, I think people get hung up too much on the per stream rates with Spotify, and you need to look at it more from a per user rate. If the consumer on Spotify is spending $120 a year on music, and the, the reality is about That's two, more than they spend on CDs. Yeah, that's more than they spent before, and a bigger chunk of that is going to the rights holders than uh, the CD dollars. So. How is this a bad thing? And at the end of the day, I mean, from an artist management perspective, if our stream numbers are high, that also means our ticket sales are high. That often means we're landing sinks. It means we're doing things right. So again, streaming is never going to be the answer, just as CD sales or vinyl sales weren't necessarily the answer. It's all part of a bigger picture. Hey, Andy, let me ask you. Ron Conway very famously said a few years ago that he wouldn't invest in any business that depended on the wisdom of a music industry executive. You seem to be bullish on music. Is it because the executives are out of the decision-making process, or do you think we're at a different point? Any business that has to get uh, approval from a lawyer, I will not invest in. <laughs> or an ex-lawyer. Okay. <laughs> the cool thing is... So, what do you, but you, you seem to be bullish on investing in music now, right. contrary to a lot of people who, so, who've like so, avoided the vertical. So, um, 
it, it's a, the reason why, one of the reasons why I like it personally is that it's a little bit of contrarian bet. VCs don't like the music business because they've spent billions of dollars investing in the music business and haven't gotten a return back. Very few investors have gotten returned back because of the slowness and the, uh, the slowness of the industry, how, how, how slowly it has changed. I'm of the belief that, it's gonna, that change is going to accelerate over the next few years and that will create opportunity. Where there's chaos, there's opportunity for us or me. And incidentally, when you talk about Spotify, half a billion dollars to the record business, it's still a shitty business. It's still losing money. You know, think about how much money they're generating, how much they're giving back to the... It was, it's a shitty business. And so, you know, the plan is, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the Spotify plan is, you know what, once we are writing a check for a billion dollars to the record industry, then we can go back and say, hey, we need a lower rate. Otherwise, that billion dollars is going to disappear. So that's what they're, you're setting yourself up for. How'd that work out for Pandora? Well, it hasn't, <laughs> right? And so you're, you've got all these businesses that are giving exposure to fans to music, the fans seeming to like the services, the numbers are you know, all public, but in the end, they're building a shitty business unless we as an industry change and allow them, allow, and collect less money from them. So I think about that and I say, well, isn't there a way to use that businesses, the streaming services, the radio businesses, and so on, to create a fan base, and then you start monetizing that fan base. You know, one of the things I told an aspiring young artist, saying, you know what, if you can create a deal with Pandora, Spotify, RDO, all these music services, and says, you know what, I'm going to give you my music royalty-free, but in exchange, I want all the data. I want email addresses, I want the number of times they listen to it, I want to know everything about my fans as much as possible. That would mean I will be able to monetize those fans directly, direct to fan monetization, and be, generate a lot more money than if I was getting a penny or nine pennies per song that... Pandora or Spotify or Audio Place. So, I, to I me, think I think there's a lot of streaming there. companies are more open to that than you think, though. Um, and but I, it's not, the, way, the way they do it is not scalable, though. It's right. not scalable. I mean, you can get that data, you get reports or spreadsheets, but it's not scalable. How do you use that data? At, it's not scalable in which, in which way? Because if, you're, if, if they were transparent about the data and gave it back to the artists, I agree with you, that's an amazing tool. How many artists would know what to do with that data? How many artists c can collect that data on a timely basis and generate reports or generate... It depends on the reports? dashboard. I mean, that's where uh, Alex is here somewhere from Next Week Sound. I don't know if he's in the room, but a really good dashboard that even you and I could look at and basically see what's going on. That was the trick with SoundScan. When SoundScan first came out years ago, it was just this raw data of sales that you couldn't do anything with till somebody put a really good visual dashboard that showed you trending, that showed you which market it was happening in. It was basically parsing that data. Show me that dashboard and I'll invest in it. Okay. There's a few people that have dashboards in this room. Who has a dashboard for anybody here doing that? Talk to there him. Now, there's some people doing some really good, good tools that let artists, let managers, let agents see what's going on. Yeah, and, and that needs to... You know, we need to not overthink that. The main thing I want is location and email addresses. When I see uh, astrological signs and a million other, like, we don't need that. So just some straightforward information on who our fans are and, and where they are is incredibly useful. But think about this. Somebody just listened to the same song five times in a row, and he, he or she gets an offer right after that fifth listen. He or she is much more likely to purchase or buy or spend than if, he listened to the song two months ago. Hey, we try, we, I tried to do one back at EMI where I said to services at the time, if you could do a conditional offer that while the song's playing, the song is 50 cents instead of a buck. I'll invest in I that too. 
they wouldn't do it at the time. Maybe it can be done now, but that there's no, that's the problem with digital to a certain extent is there is no urgency. If I want to hear it again, I can hear it again. If I do want to buy it now, if I buy it later, there's, there's, there's nothing on sale other than Amazon does some cool stuff. But iTunes, it's 99 cents or $1.29 today. It's $1.29 tomorrow. We've lost that urgency and call to action and getting people excited about an opportunity. It's quite rigid. I mean, I ha to be totally blunt, I, I have to be careful what I say because iTunes is so powerful. But I feel like when I have... We won't tell anybody, right? <laughs> We're not being I webcasting. feel like when I have come up with cool digital ideas, whether... You know, for Brennan Benson's last release, we very clearly sequenced it as a side A and a side B because it, it's meant for vinyl. So I took that to digital retail saying, can we label that in the digital universe as side A, as side B? That's artistically how we want to present it, you know, with, with the flip kind of even being an intermission of a play. And I was told over and over that I was just going for double sales. So I, <laughs> I'd like to think that digital retail, which is supposed to be the now and the future um, cannot get stuck by a lot of uh, the things that happened to traditional retail. Larry, let me ask you, a year, a year and a half ago, the whole Spotify app universe launched with the idea that you could put your product out there like TuneWiki and get some attention for it. But we're now 18 months into it or close to that, something 16 months into it. When, when do you get to pull the trigger and actually derive some revenue from what you've created? Because right now, in the Spotify world, you've not only painted the fence, you brought the paint, you brought the brushes, and you brought the wood for the fence. It's a, it's a good question. Um, I can't really talk too much about the specifics, but the answer is extremely soon, okay. um, like within the next couple of months. I mean, does everybody know that? I mean, most of the app, I mean, not most of the apps, all the apps that are on Spotify, you're not allowed to actually, as the app creator, to currently monetize them. Yeah, but. Every, everybody knew that was an issue. I mean, why did people do it to begin with? They for did, attention. Well, but why did Spotify do it? Spotify did it because they were so busy creating access for everybody that they didn't have the ability to create curation, to provide lyrics, to provide concert tickets. So they wanted to offer a better service. And because we wanted access, we all agreed to show up. But we all agreed to show up not forever for free. Right. We agreed to show up to create a market. It worked very well for us. We're the number one app on Spotify and have been since they started ranking apps. And we license content from the music publishers. And there's no way that anybody's going to let that continue on forever. So you know, I can't be specific about what we're doing, but there are plans in place. And they're going to launch in the next couple of months. And we're going to be, we, we will be monetizing, as, as will others, I believe. because. It has to be the case. And there are a lot of people who, uh, brands and advertisers, who are interested in creating certain experiences around what's being done in Spotify, where we create an opportunity for people to communicate with their friends and use lyrics as a means of expression. That's very powerful for a brand to be able to tie into uh, their objectives and their uh, messaging and using lyrics to, to further that. So people want to support that, and it's, it's going to work there, and it's going to work with other streaming services as well very soon. Good. That's good, because, I mean, you guys have been at this for a long time, as have people like Mood Agent and Swarm FM and all these people that are creating really uh, great add-ons. We, well, I mean, if, we can't stay in business if we don't monetize that way, right. right? And so Spotify is aware of that as well. And if Spotify wants to offer these great services and make their service better for users, then they know that the app companies that are supporting their platform have to be able to monetize or it just doesn't work in the long term. 
Right. So the idea of this panel is to get a gauge of where we're at and where we're going. So in that, at the risk of turning this into a revival meeting, is there anybody who wants to share who's creating a service or creating an application, whether it's licensing issues, whether whatever it is that's holding you back or, or impeding your progress? Does anybody want to talk about where they are in the process of developing their service? And if so, what difference? differentiates you from what already exists. So go ahead, you go first, and we'll see if we can get other people involved here. Talk as loud as, oh, he's got a mic for you. You're amplified. My name's Tim Wood. I've, uh, I designed and implemented livecut.com, uh, which allows audience members to go to a concert and use their smartphones, <clears throat> smartphones to order, pay for, and download recordings from that concert. Um, the, uh, probably the most familiar example to many people will be um, uh, I guess it was originally Clear Channel System, I think Live Nation picked it up, which was essentially instant live uh, to get hard physical um, copies, CDs. Um, and the advantage of, of this system is that it lets it, the ordering and fulfillment be completely decentralized in essentially in the cloud. Um, we would sign a uh, contract with the bands, of course, and uh, pay all the applicable mechanical royalties on the copies and things. And so the biggest... Um, the biggest obstacle is actually uh, just doing the outreach to the acts and getting them to take a chance on this concept and see it as uh, an augmentation, an additional revenue stream, and something will differentiate them positively with their audience uh, rather than a risk. And what's the pushback at this point? Um, I think mostly it's just it's just access to that field. Um, you know, I'm a technologist uh, with sort of a family background in music more. So, um, and my mother was a record producer, and, um, uh, and so I, I grew up loving that process, but my, my strengths lay in technology, so I thought, well, a way to merge the two is I'll do the technical piece and do the, you know, kind of legal research, got the patent, built the system, um, but I, I need uh, the contacts to the world, to the artists, to, to give them the message and, and help them understand. Well, and you know the other answer to your question. What? Well, when you're filming Angelique, you know, sometimes, sometimes the artists are, aren't going to, okay, I love what you're doing. That is awesome. Thank you. Um, and we were talking about the same thing. I, we had a client, a company called Ovation in Los Angeles. They've been at the Greek Theater installed for two years. They've recorded three artists because every manager goes, I don't want my artist recorded live. And I'm going, I the do. ushers are recording yeah. your show. Yeah. <laughs> Used to be well, the ushers said, put your phone away. Now they're all standing there like yeah. this, yeah. holding their iPhones up. Right. I, 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 you know, I, that's yeah, clearly getting the bands to, to buy in to say, no, you know, this is not going to dilute your sales if it's <laughs> done right. You can, do a, you can do a scarcity model, um, at least initially. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, there are definite risks, you know, things can get shared out, but they can also get traced back to who we're No, that's great talking. if it gets shared out. I mean, that's a, yeah. what you're doing is a perfect example of a new revenue stream in the modern music industry. The one slight hurdle you, you might have, but not with my artists is, um, you know, just make sure the quality control of that recording is, I'm sure, I'm sure you're on that's, it, but that, that is the point. And, and there's, a, there's a sliding scale there. We can offer production services um, in one scenario, or we can put it completely with the artist and artist management and just act as the cloud distributor. I can, I can tell you from, um, from the live side of it, we're being pitched um, user-generated 
live mashups were being pitched, virtual worlds with kind of a social bent. Um, the opportunities to broadcast our events are kind of endless right now. Sure. Um, you know, uh, and how does your artist community that you're serving in the EDM world feel about all that? Well, given that they're pressing buttons, they're not so worried about their performance. Right. Um, they're and pretty. You, much, you hope they're pressing buttons they're, in most. They're going to be in pitch pretty much every uh, you right. know every song. But um, you know, there's a, a startup less than two. I, I forget what the kids are called, but they just announced that they're what is it? Less than three. Thank you. So so they're broadcasting um, the Ultra Music Festival and kind of their virtual world frame and I mean you know the, the, these are opportunities to monetize they're also really opportunities to spread your brand and I think you know one thing that I think um, whether you're a, a baby artist really for everybody except to a great degree the producer and the songwriter is we're in the brand building business and so it's really just about building a brand and monetizing it and that's, that's to your point earlier, Ted, that's what's unfortunate about those who don't have a consumer face. Mm -hmm. they, they can't really build their brand, and they're kind of screwed in the new world order. In a way, they can, though. You know? Within the, in a B2B way. Yeah, but, you know, it, and it's, it's so basic, but, you know, having a website, having a social media presence, like, and it's not always going to be the same as a public artist, but I, right. I would love to work on something like that, you know, like trying to spread the word on a songwriter or straight up a producer. Well, let me ask both Daryl and Larry, as, as two guys up here who have been dealing the last at least five years on dealing with the rights holders and in most, in mostly publishers, is it better now? Do you find the negotiations a little more reasonable? Is it, because again, we're to, to get a handle here of, are we making any progress? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's some progress for us. Like, okay. She he, can't say anything bad about iTunes. He can't say anything <laughs> bad about Spotify. Who can't you say anything bad about? Go ahead. I guess it's it's been almost nine years for us okay. now, and the biggest hurdle we had at the beginning was just convincing people that there was a lyrics market, and that this is something that they should license. And you know, I I, I spent an hour and a half on the phone with somebody from EMI at at the very beginning when we were getting started, and immediately after getting off the phone with me, she picked up the phone and called Ted and said, who the fuck is this guy? And is there actually a market there? And should we license it? And fortunately, Ted said yes. So eventually we got that, that deal done, but that process repeated itself over and over and over again with every publisher that we were trying to deal with and convince them that there was actual revenue to be captured there. And then they had to figure out how to get us the data. And then we had to figure out reporting to them. And we had to figure and out what the And they actually didn't were. deliver an asset to you. And why wouldn't you just yeah. try? Exactly, and why not try, like, something is better than nothing, right? They were making no money off of lyrics when we started. Now, as our, our big push now is worldwide rights. So we're in 30 countries right now, uh, and we have worldwide rights from a lot of the major publishers as we build in all that data. Now, as we go to international publishers and societies, we at least have a proven model, and we can say, look, we're paying out millions of dollars for this asset that didn't exist before, so you need to license us as well. And it's an easier sell. We still go through the process of them figuring out the rights process. Are the, are the goalposts getting wider? I mean, it used to be, uh, there was a guy who just left EMI named Colin Finkelstein, who I always mention on every panel. And he was the bane of my existence, because um, 
Neil would come in, I'm picking on Neil here, I'm kidding, but Neil would come in with a new service and it would take us six months to get the deal done and five months into it, Neil would come up with a redesign and he moved the play button from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen and Colin would say, well, that changes everything. No, it didn't change everything. They just moved the play button. Get over it. I mean, is it, is, and so in we, terms We've got of, a lot more flexibility. A lot now. more flexibility. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're at the point now that the publishers trust us uh, to do good deals uh, and just make the pie bigger. Uh, and I think in that respect, it's a little easier to work with the publishers than the labels. Uh, totally that agree. they're used to just kind of being along for the ride and collecting the <laughs> checks. Uh, and well, I, I would say th thanks to, to, to Daryl and, and, and a few others. The publishers now understand that there is a business around lyrics. So they are willing to do deals. It varies. I mean, I think more and more publishers understand that this is something they should be doing. You still get certain publishers who want to charge an awful lot of money for the right to have those lyrics and don't really want to spend a whole lot of time understanding what your business model is mm -hmm. and why they should give you the opportunity to you know, generate revenue with not such a big advance. So there's a lot of conversations and a lot of convincing that, that needs to be done. And I know in, in Daryl's case, it was good that you know, he had, had you, I'm sure, to help. And in my case, it's good to have you know, a high-powered music lawyer who knows all the publishers mm -hmm. who can vouch. You know? but it takes an awful lot of time. Well, this is yeah. the thing. I mean, if you look back 10 years ago, when Tower Records did exist, we would give them 10,000 units that we would tell, say, pay us in six months. If you return them, we'll give you actually 10% credit. We'll give you 10% off, and when you return them, you're actually making money on your returns. We'll pay the clerks to wear the T-shirts. We'll pay to put these signs outside. And then digital comes along, and we go, how much business are you going to do? Well, we're going to do a million dollars. Okay, give us a check for a million right now out front. By the way, you can give us 5% of your company. And I was party to some of that at the beginning until I got my head straight. But we completely flipped it from we're going to bend over backwards to give you everything to you're going to bend over backwards and give us everything. And have we gotten to a, are we getting to a middle now where, as David Unn said a few years ago at Meetum, are we doing a partnership instead of you know, a hostage takeover? We're, we're getting closer. But I don't think we're fully there yet. Yeah, it, it's a little bit easier. But even now, when we do a renewal with a lot of the major publishers, they say, "Okay, you we're doing a three-year renewal, and last quarter you paid us X number of dollars. So the advance that we want is 12x." And that's their starting point. <laughs> <laughs> so they want the three years royalties as an advance up front, and it's like, well. Do you actually want us to grow this business, or do you want to put us out of business? And then it chips down to something reasonable. But it, it's still, the starting points, I think, are still a little, a little crazy, but they're at least willing to end at something that is, that is definitely workable. Well, and that's not necessarily sustainable. Um, however, it has been my experience that the publishers we work with are significantly more forward-thinking than, than the labels we often work with. Um, but I, you know, I'm talking about downtown and peer and things like that. I can't even imagine you guys having to do these deals with major publishers. There are only about 10,000 of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, be between Larry and I, we've done about 6,000 publishing deals. That's about right. So uh, everyone is a little bit different, but I think that this is true for us. It's probably true for you too, too Larry, that we're, we're both at the point now where 
we have most of the stuff that matters. And if somebody is being difficult, we're okay just not using it. And the deal, everybody gets the same deal from us, uh, whether it's a, a major or an indie, whether they go through HFA or, or direct, it's all the same deal. And if they're not happy with that, then okay, we just, we won't license it, we won't use it, we won't pay them anything. Uh, mind you, there's lots of people that are using it that are unlicensed out there and you're getting no money off of it. Um, and, and that's sort of our position of just, at, at this point, take the same deal as everyone else or we're okay not doing a deal. Okay, let's switch gears for a second. Haney, I wanna ask you, you get a lot of pitches coming across your desk, daily, weekly, hourly, right after you get off this panel, there's gonna be, you're the one that's going to get rushed by this crowd. So what do you look for in, in an investment now based on what you know the current state of the music industry is and, and the change point that we're at, this inflection point? So it's interesting. I'm listening to these guys talk about the deals that they're trying to do with the labels and how seemingly irrational some of these deals are to publish lyrics. And that, that scares the living hell out of me. I mean, you're dealing with people that don't, are not thinking about the size of the pie. They, it's, it's about, I want to take every single penny out of the existing pie. And so they're not willing to give up 1% to make the pie 10% bigger. So that, that right there would, would scare me. So that's a, that's a turn off. To be, to be fair to the publishers, they, they never actually end up insisting on that. That's just kind of their, their opener. Starting point. Uh, and, and they are a lot better than before. And our initial deals that we did ended up being very cost effective from an advanced perspective, probably because there was no market at the time. And I think it's more expensive now if somebody wanted to do similar deals. But they're, they're definitely heading in the right direction and improving. So uh, what, I, what I look for, I think more and more direct-to-fan engagement is going to be important and probably critical. I think uh, systems and solutions that help the label, artist, band, whatever, uh, have direct engagement with their fans are going to be extremely important. I think differing ways to monetize those fans and how to create systems that are scalable and sustainable, which are two very important words, uh, are going to be critically important. And the thing is, with, with the size of the funds we have, we need, to have, we need to invest in businesses that can, you can see an easy way to get to $100 million in revenue, and you can get to an easy way for that company to be worth a billion dollars or more. So I see a lot of ideas and a lot of great, neat ideas, we refer to them internally as features, that are great little products or great little features of an add-on product, but they're not going to be standalone companies. And that's interesting. You talk about that. We, oops, sorry, got my first phone call of the panel. Um, we used to see that a lot of companies would come in and they'd say, "We're we're we're a company," and I go, yeah. "No, you're a feature, and you need to roll up with other features." And people have this thing of people will go to them for just this one little slice of the experience. And, that, uh, uh, and so you, you flip that around, you think about it from the fan experience and the band experience. If I need to have 30 apps to listen to music on my iPhone, something is not right. If I as a band or a manager need to go to 30 different websites to check in my, on my fan profiles, 
mm -hmm. where they are geographically, that's right. not the right way right. to do it, right? So I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation over right. the years okay. in the tech space as well. Okay. We need a mic over on the side. Dave Allen has a question. So do your best, uh, Jerry Springer. There you go. Not you, him. He ran. Thanks. I was going to say Phil Donahue, but um, that would date me. Okay. Yeah. Come on, Ted. We'll date each other. Okay. Not literally. Um, <laughs> uh, so interesting panel. Thanks, guys. Does everybody uh, know Dave Allen? If you don't, you should. Famous member of Gang of Four. Thank yeah, you, Ted. Cash board member also. I was going to say, Emily, you never mentioned the fact that we're both directors on the I know, board of I Cash Music. That. Um, I, we're both members of, uh, of Cash Music, which is an amazing nonprofit music technology platform. It's going to win. Um, and we have Google on there, and we have Oppenheimer's on there. I mean, it's just in, it's insane. Anyway, I didn't want to talk about that, uh, but I will at my panel this afternoon as well. Um, uh, I was just thinking through that. This is like listening to the death throes of an entire industry, um, which is often the case at a, a, a conference like this. Um, and, and you know, in what I, respect? We're trying well, to look forward. We're trying to look forward and see where we've been and whatever. Yeah, but so. often, as McLuhan said, if as you look forward, you have to go backwards. Right. Right. Let's look at history, and I don't want to get into that because that'll be way too philosophical, and I'll be talking forever here. But um, actually, it's like what Max Planck has said, the philosopher. It's like you know, in advances in science go from funeral to funeral. So as people die and get out of the damn way, and then the new generation comes up behind, and everyone just lives it then things get amazing, right? And we, we've been seeing that for a long time. The social construct has shifted to nobody buys a lot of music these days. The social construct has shifted to uh, all my students at the University of Oregon. I poll them every single term. What's your favorite um, music program to listen to music on? YouTube, by 79, 80% every time. So, you know, you end up sitting in panels like this, and I said it in the, in the first panel this morning, it's like this bubble world we're living in, and perhaps, uh, I'd, I don't know how to say your first name, Henny? That's good enough. Is that good? Yep, that's or, great. I'm always embarrassed by my you know, lack of worldliness. Um, but um, maybe there is some future, but you know, when you're talking about how do we get to a $100 million company that can get to a billion dollars, now we're talking about replacing a sort of a music industry idea based on its value, cash value, but how much are we focusing on what real people do in the world today, outside this room, outside this conference? And I think that's something I haven't heard yet this morning, and I'd like to hear more about that ultimately. Like, if you didn't have the barriers to entry, which are all these licensing deals you have to keep um, scratching out, mm -hmm. where I, as a professional musician, don't get compensated whatsoever, except in pennies if I'm lucky, um, where's, where do, where's the user and the musician fit into all of what I'm hearing today? So you're saying, what is it, what, if, if licensing wasn't an issue, what's the, what's the new experience? Yeah, and I, and I, like, you know, something I've, I've noticed, I've loved coming to this conference. It's been, what, 12? Groove, sh Groove Shark. Groove Shark? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, all right. I mean, if everyone's happy with that, you know, it's fine. YouTube, um, un until we get the Gang of Four channel together, you know, and get our music back from EMI, who at the moment is hearing from our legal team about digital royalties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's all like, what, uh, what can we do here? We, you know, we could build the Gang of Four channel when we own the rights to our digital uh, music streaming, and then maybe we'd make something off YouTube through advertising. 
But that's been the dynamic tension for the last 12 years is the mm -hmm. choice of people who go out and there was a, a um, license the rights in advance and the people who went out and did something edgy and then tried to get the rights later. And YouTube, for better or for worse, set a really weird example for everybody of if you have enough, if you have enough clout and if you have enough users and you have enough money behind you, you will survive. There's all, the landscape's also littered with people who created amazing user experiences without clearing rights and ended up as roadkill. Yeah. So it, it's not a clear path to just create the utopian experience. Yeah, and um, all I'm asking at the end of the day is ultimately how do musicians get compensated properly for their, their um, copyrights um, and focus entirely on the users and what they're doing today. And so Emily, I think, I think you just said the answer. You, you just said the answer, right? I hope it, so. You just said, how does, how does a musician get paid for his skills, talent? Um, and, and you talked about how do you make it right for the user. I, I think if you create value for the user and you create experiences for the user and there is actually a connection between the user and the band, there will be monetization opportunities that you can make a ton of, a lot more money than you're making today. Right, but with, with you know. But you, have to identify, but you have to identify those users and tailor your offers to those users. Definitely, and that's more the direct-to-fan sector, but with this, this mess of licensing everybody's talking about, it's exactly why I'm all about my artists owning their rights, because then we get to do whatever we want. And when syncs come in and things like that, I'm the approval along with my artists, and that money goes directly to the artist, to the writer. Um, so unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily help amazing catalogs. Um, but even for my established artists, I mean, Urge Overkill, I helped them put out their first album in 15 years, and they own all the rights, and all of that revenue goes, goes to them. In, in addition to the fact that I'm trying to make, you know, these guys' lives who are doing lyrics and, and syncs and things like that as easy as possible. I'm not trying to complicate it. Okay. I mean, one of the things that's out there in the revenue stream while everybody's up here plugging what they're working on, we have a current client called Tunzi that's creating experiences. And the idea is create a fan experience. They, nothing can, that can't be usurped. That's something that you can monetize and only the fan can enjoy it if he's, he's opted in to do it. So those kind of revenue streams are new ones that, that, you know, that get you money that was never there before. You had a question, then he has a question or a comment. Go ahead. And he's running. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, Dimitri Vitz with StoryAmp, not using the chance to pitch my company, but... Go ahead. Um, well, it's a, it's a web platform It's a great company. For, thanks. <laughs> it's a web platform for connecting um, journalists with music. So it's a disruptive music PR platform that we can do in music first and then move into other industries, cool. other verticals as well. So glad to tell anybody about the, that. The genius on that, I have to say, is tour press. When you think about how big the United States is, I completely rely on our high-level publicists to get features in, in kind of mainstream publications. But for someone to know that Alston Pudding is the coolest blog in Boston and things like that, that's something that I feel like tech, you know, can, can do better than a human publicist. We've got 7,500 journalists filtered by Concert City Market. So anyway, my, something that I always think is interesting in this kind of conversation about the past and the future and where we're going, all that kind of stuff that doesn't come up as much as Pandora and Spotify is move music and cricket. Oh, where, yes. Where you have a cell phone company who's building into the, the, the monthly fee uh, persistent all-you-can-eat music. Um, They're the biggest paid-for service out there right now. And we didn't mention them yet. In a market vertical, if you're not familiar with cricket move, most of you probably are, though. But 
it was looked at, it's a pay-as-you-go market, it was considered a minority uh, demographic, and who would care? It turns out that the uptake was huge. And now they're looking at licensing it to other platforms. So what I don't services. understand is when you have artists and labels and people complaining about how are we going to you know, monetize recorded music the way we used to, why aren't we all advocating that cell phone carriers build this into all of them, not just one of them, but every single one of them? Well, they did, but they did. Like Nokia comes with music, became, comes with problems, because they basically looked at Nokia as a cash cow, not to say this is, again, not a partnership of let's put our music on every cell phone in the world, We'll take a little piece of the you know, of the revenue model. It was write us a check for twenty-one million dollars, and then they end up. So it's back to the licensing issue. It's really. back yeah. to the license. Unfortunately, yeah. that's why we have to make this transition right now, where it is. And I keep quoting David Un, from who's now at uh, he's at Samsung, that we have to look at these as partnerships, as joint ventures, not look at it as how much are you going to pay me out front. That's the critical I, point. I still I can't see a, a better way to get to full market access to music Especially than that. Especially in, in India and all these emerging markets. Well, yeah. Yeah. But by the way, that's what. Uh, by the way, I have to commend you on your thrift shop shopping experience. <laughs> I mean, you are that was great, and I mean that in a positive way. Thanks. Uh, okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so he didn't have to decide stripes or paisley. He went for both. It's great. <laughs> why choose? Why choose? So he paid, the why he you paid mice nuts for those. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty dollars in his pocket, right? So the reason why YouTube is so, so popular, and my kids, my 7-year-old to my 12-year-old use YouTube more than they have Spotify, Pandora, anything else. They have access to all that because it's free and it's easy. Free and easy. It seems free. It seems free, but they're actually getting paid. That's the good thing. It's frictionless. Right. It's frictionless. Yeah. It's exactly right. It's user experience. So the other thing that's missing from this conversation, I think, is there are way more musicians producing and creating music than ever before. And whenever this conversation comes up about how are musicians going to monetize their music, most of them are not. That's just how it is. And people right. need to keep reminding people that, sorry, just because you took guitar lessons doesn't mean you're going to make money off of this. Now, I do think that part of what's missing from the industry are elevators between the levels. Like, how do you get from DIY artist up to, like, fully known household name kind of thing? There's a lot of systems missing. There's an organic process to that as well. But there's a lot of, there's no, like... DIY reaches up to the higher status. Maybe it's YouTube again. No, but well, that was, but a, that was an, and it's a great service, but Psy. that was the problem with Topspin. I'm sorry? Gingham style, right? I mean, that Say it again? Gingham style. That's an okay. example of right. one. So look, one of the things that I'm most excited about is that fat tail of the content pipe, mm -hmm. right? Everybody talks about the, you know, this thin tail. I think it's going to become fat. I think what everybody's talking about is royalties in the upper echelon of artists. That... I think that's going to take a long time to work itself out. But that fat tail where these independent artists right. are controlling their own rights and being able to be creative about how they monetize, that's where you're going to see the biggest change in the industry in the next 10 years. That's where I think the biggest opportunity. You know, one, one thing you mentioned about, oh God, um, you know, no. more people are making more music than ever. I don't think it's a coincidence, as Emily stated, where the chaos is settling a little bit, that we're also, we're witnessing kind of um, a music revolution uh, creatively that we haven't seen since maybe the early 90s. And by that, I mean we've got this folk rock thing, the Mumford and Sons, the Lumineers, the Civil Wars that is, that is catching on and doing real business. Dance music is a ridiculous business right now. And Nashville, this kind of new school country, I mean, we haven't seen three genres galvanize and, and become mainstream since maybe grunge and rap in, in, the, in, the, in the 90s. So I think, I think music's exciting. 
And I think that is really playing a major role in settling the chaos. Consumers want to support these artists. John, let me put you on the spot for a moment, because you were at an interesting place a couple of years ago. So John was running a company called Hello Music, which still exists, but it pivoted in what its business model is. But there were a lot of aspirations to give a voice to indie artists and to give that, those levels of, that he's talking about, how do you move them up? Why did it, uh, I'm, I'm gonna say this, and, I'm, and Zach is a friend, but why did it go so wrong? Where did it, why didn't it work? And why don't you explain what it was supposed to be and where it ended up? Well, the premise was we, we had a room full of um, really music savvy kids who would listen to every submission. And then we'd create a data file of, of a thousand data points that would kind of identify them. Then we try to match those up, up with opportunities. And um, I just simply don't think, I mean, I don't think we had enough investment. I don't think the runway was long enough. Um, I don't think the but tools. Do you think the idea was, I mean, do you think it's an idea that, that still could work? The idea well, it's, of connect. It was, it was human, human created algorithms, if that makes any sense. No, it does. Um, and, and I think that opportunity still is out there. I mean, I think, you know, I think size is like the worst possible example. But, you know, I think all the acts that I mentioned, um, they kind of started on their own, right? And they made their own noise, and then people came in and took them to the next level. So the tools to, take, to, to, to go from obscurity to the next level are there. I think the, the, the bigger problem is most artists just want to make their art. So they need to have good people around them. And so, you know, the value of the team, the value of the manager in particular, I think you said earlier, you know, how many artists know what to do with this data? Well, not many, but that's why they have a good manager. And so that opportunity, if you're really good, it is a little bit easier to get noticed, I think, now than it has been. And so those opportunities will exist more. Okay, couple, of, we, okay, we have two minutes. He has a remark here, but as they give him the mic, um, I want to ask a question, for most of you who are out there trying to do any kind of licensing as we look to the future, does blanket licensing cure all this? I mean, show of hands, if you do blanket licensing and we, have, and we make this less of a lawyer process and more of a rip and read form process, would that make it easier for all of you? I, think, I, think I see some heads nodding. I think blanket licensing uh, makes it easier for homogenous services, but with all the different things that are happening and every service is kind of unique and different, mm -hmm. then blanket licensing isn't gonna fit all those. That's uh, why I talked about making the goalposts a little wider. Yeah, but you, you end up in a situation where if the, if the blanket license is broad enough to fit all the new things that we wanna do, then you're probably really lowering the value of music a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, our licenses cover both. But, I, I think okay, I want to give, not, I give this, gentleman, I give this I think, gentleman over here. I think licensing is the wrong word, and that's the, that, that word in itself is going to get us in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I'm going licensing. to pass it on very quickly. Somebody in here tweeted that I said that 80% of uh, young people uh, only get their music from YouTube. I didn't actually say that. Thank you. <laughs> I heard David say that. Okay. He, I just heard him say it right now. Good. I so heard this, him say it now. Uh, this is a good time. Quickly, because we're down to a minute. We I'm have sorry. a licensing observation. We have a uh, site called AceNote. Mm -hmm. What it is, is it's an online music lesson platform. So a student teacher can hook up right. and do a lesson, live video lesson. It's like a specialized version of Skype with tools to get paid and schedule and musicians' tools. Cool. But we're seeing one thing that's interesting. We have some very prominent musicians who want to use this because they have fans across the country who will pay them a lot of money for a lesson. But then we have this issue of the lesson may get recorded and get out there, and who owns the rights to that? Mm -hmm. And it may be a good moment in the musician's life or a bad moment or whatever, but we have to kind of deal with that. We're trying to figure out what to do with it. 
I'd love okay. to talk to you. I have some artists doing that. Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll come back to you. It's great. All right. I wanna, oh, she's holding up a sign that says END. I think that means end. Thanks, everybody. Uh, show of hands, because I, I really need the feedback. Did we accomplish what you came here for today? Think yes. Think no. Thank you for being kind in that vote. See you later. Bye-bye.